Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In your order of worship, you have Romans 7, the, the final paragraph of Romans 7, but between printing the order of worship and today, um, the Spirit changed my direction. And I just want to speak to you this morning on uh, one of the Beatitudes. So I was reading through Matthew's Gospel this week and working through Matthew 5. And Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's what I'd like to speak to you about this morning. Mourning and the comfort that comes to those who mourn. Way back in the ancient world, before the Roman Empire, but after Alexander the Great, the king of Sparta fell on hard times, and he had to send a hostage to Egypt, the king of Egypt. The hostage that he had to send was his own mother, and it was a humiliation. It was a sign of his own weakness that he was forced to send his own mother into captivity. But his mother was a woman of outstanding moral fiber and not only was willing to go, but went um, at least publicly with a show of equanimity. She didn't weep over it. She didn't get upset. She didn't feel betrayed by her son. At least from the outside, everything appeared to be perfectly normal. She prepared to go. She and her son, the king, went into the temple to pray together for the last time. And he broke down in tears. He grieved. He was distressed. We are told by the chroniclers, uh, Plutarch says he was greatly troubled by what was happening. And so his mother, who was being sent away, gave him words of encouragement. The Greek poet Constantine Kavafi imagined this scene, and these are the words that he placed into her mouth as she spoke to her son, the king. She says to him, Come, O king of the Lacedaemonians. When we go outside, let no one see us weeping or behaving in any way unworthy of Sparta. At least this is still in our power. What lies ahead is in the hands of the gods. Strength. When we go outside this place, let no one see us weeping. Let no one recognize the distress inside. Make it appear as if we are in control. Appear as if everything is normal and we are resigned to our fates. Strength like that was admired in the ancient world. That kind of strength was the highest virtue, and it still is admired. It still is. Stoicism in the face of suffering, or uh, to put it another way, a stiff upper lip. Not being pulled down by your troubles, but, but enduring manfully. But we don't have to be strong in grief. Grace changes everything, even death and mourning. When Paul the Apostle sought to be strong, when he sought God, he prayed, and he said, take this weakness, take this thorn in the flesh from me. God refused to do it and instead said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power 
is made perfect in weakness. We don't have to be strong because he is. Another piece of advice story gave me once, after giving me some encouragement over a sermon that I had preached, that was a wonderful sermon, a great sermon. Uh, you couldn't improve anything about that sermon, except you could have made the points clearer. And I can see by your response that you feel she was right. Um, you could have made it easier. Because, you know, some people will tell you what they're going to tell you. And then they'll tell you what they're telling you. And then afterwards, they'll tell you what they told you. And I'm just saying, you know, that's what some people do. So in honor of that, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And it's just two simple points. It's a simple message. First, as a Christian, it is okay to mourn. As a Christian, it is okay to grieve. In fact, that's, that's not quite right. It is not okay to mourn. It is good. It is good to mourn. That's the first point. The second one is that the way that we mourn is not the way that others do. It is good to mourn, but we do mourn differently. Because grace has changed our mourning. Grace has changed even the way that we grieve. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In Matthew 5, 4. Now, blessed is a fancy word. An old English word. Uh, We would say blessed. Right, without putting that extra emphasis on the last syllable, blessed. But we wouldn't even say blessed anymore. There's an easier way to translate this. It's, it's happy. Happy. Except if you do it that way, then it sounds like Jesus is saying something really strange, contradictory, paradoxical. Happy are those who mourn. Because... I mean, the whole point of mourning is to express sadness, to express grief. But here, as in all of the Beatitudes, what Jesus is saying, it's, it's more than just a paradox. It's an indication that, that, that the norms are being turned upside down, that the way things usually go will not prevail any longer, that now what we used to perceive as cursing, we will consider blessing, that now what we used to consider strength and what we used to strive for in ourselves as strength, now we will strive for something else, weakness even. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, if everything is being turned upside down in the Beatitudes, the question is, what's doing the turning? Like, Why are things turning upside down? The important thing to understand is what Jesus is doing here is he's announcing the kingdom. The kingdom is coming upon us, and it is changing things. Now, because of Christ's kingdom, blessed are those who mourn. Now, because of Christ's kingdom, blessed are the weak and the meek. What used to be the last thing in the world that you would value, suddenly the kingdom turns it upside down. Jesus turns it upside down. 
Because the kingdom has come, those who mourn are blessed, indeed happy. Because comfort is coming. Because comfort is coming. They shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. A future tense. This is a thing that will take place. That because the kingdom has come, those who mourn shall be comforted. There is comfort for us in our grief. Which makes you wonder what comfort could possibly turn those who mourn into those who rejoice. What kind of comfort, what kind of silver lining would turn mourning into joy? Now, I understand when we mourn, when we grieve, there's something very human within us that, that leads us to seek those silver linings. Like, we find ourselves coming up with, like, an explanation, a rationale for why this bad thing that happened, this tragic thing, you know, actually was kind of good in a way. It was sort of, you know, a blessing in disguise, that kind of thing. We have it within us to... to, to uh, Put a, find a silver lining in anything or, or, or to spin anything, you know. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't talking about silver linings. He's not talking about the way in which uh, things that are bad can be reinterpreted so that they seem good. The only thing that truly brings comfort to those who mourn is the reversal of their grief. The reversal of their grief, only the restoration of what is lost can truly turn grieving into rejoicing. Only justice, only life can do that. That's what the kingdom promises. Not just to help us find the silver lining, but to reverse the cause of the grief. That's why for a Christian, it is good to mourn. It is good to mourn. Not enjoyable, not fun, but good. You know what the most shocking example of mourning in Scripture is? You'll find this in John's Gospel in chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus. The beginning of the story, Jesus is told, Come, Lazarus is dying, but Jesus dawdles, and Lazarus dies. At the end of the story, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out of his grave. And all of that makes a kind of sense. Jesus is doing miracles all the time like this. But the middle section of that story is really puzzling. Jesus' reaction. It's like the one Bible verse almost everyone can quote because it's the shortest in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now listen to the context. This is John 11 starting in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirits and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I said this is the most shocking example of grief. Why is it shocking? Um, It's shocking because, well, its cause is so temporary. 
It's a shocking outpouring of emotion because, I mean, it happens for just a few moments. And then Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. It's like, Jesus, you've already delayed. You've already tarried. It's why he's in the grave in the first place. Maybe just go to the, the, the raising part. But Jesus takes this time to grieve. He does it in response to the tears all around him. And it's interesting that he does it because in Luke 8, that's not what Jesus does. When Jesus is called to heal a a girl who has died, Jesus shows up. The the mourners are there. The professional mourners are, are wailing. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, shut up. Not exactly in those words, but he, he, he calls them to silence. And he says, she's just sleeping. And you might draw the impression from this that Jesus is not really into grief, which makes sense because Jesus can raise the dead. Maybe it seems pointless to him to mourn someone who, who's you know, literally going to be alive in a second. Just, just wait. Hold those tears. Just wait. But that's not at all how Jesus reacts. The death of his friend, the one who he loved. Jesus doesn't take it in stride. He doesn't silence those who are grieving. Jesus joins them, and he weeps. He cries. It's interesting. John actually attributes the, the, the inner turmoil to Jesus that, that Plutarch does to the king of Sparta. He was greatly troubled inside. He was deeply moved in his spirit. John says, he weeps. This raises so many questions. But the thing I want to point out is a really simple one. There's nothing profound about this. Um, The point here, and and I'll use Jesus' words to make it, a servant is no greater than his master. A servant is no greater than his master. If we are called in all things to follow after Christ, to follow his example, here is his example. What does Jesus do in the face of of the most reversible grief chronicled in the Gospels? Jesus mourns. Jesus weeps. Jesus cries. We're no greater than he is. If Jesus mourned, then we are free to mourn. I say free because I think a lot of us feel as if maybe we shouldn't, as if there's something wrong in our grief, wrong in our mourning, that as Christians, given our belief in the life to come, that those who die in Christ will live with him, will be raised and live forever, that, that to grieve their passing somehow is wrong or unchristian. Nothing Jesus does is unchristian by definition. Jesus mourns. Jesus weeps. If you feel pressure not to mourn, not to grieve, you can set it aside and follow Jesus. If Jesus wept, there is no shame in our tears. There is no need to to hold it in, to appear strong when we are weak. Because his power is perfected in weakness. To those who mourn, Jesus says, you are blessed. For you will be comforted. 
But while we have permission to mourn, at the same time, our mourning is different. The gospel does change the way that we mourn so that Paul can warn the Thessalonians that they shouldn't grieve improperly out of ignorance. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It may seem like Paul's doing this this horrible thing. He's policing their grief, right? We know that people mourn, they grieve differently, like some outwardly, some inwardly, and that that it's different. And, And the worst thing you can do is hold people up to some kind of stereotype and say, oh, you're doing it wrong. You should be crying more. You should be crying less. You shouldn't still be crying or you should or whatever it is. We understand you don't want to do that. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul isn't, isn't policing their grief. Rather, he's pointing them to the source of their comfort, where the comfort that Jesus promised lies, because that comfort lies in the hope of resurrection. Yes, we grieve, but we grieve with a difference. Paul is speaking not just to the Thessalonians, but he's speaking right now to us. We grieve, but not without hope. We grieve, but not without hope. What is that hope? It is the hope that Jesus, who died and rose again, will raise those we have lost. Grace has changed our mourning because we no longer mourn those we have lost as if they are gone forever. In fact, we no longer mourn as if they are gone Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. In addition to being a pastor and a profound theologian, he also was was a, a guy with a lot of heart who in his letters offered comfort to all sorts of people and on all sorts of stations. Some of his most beautiful letters are those written to comfort those who mourn. Writing one of these letters, words of comfort about the passing of another saintly Christian lady. He wrote this. She is not sent away, but only sent before. Like unto a star, which going out of your sight doth not die and vanish, but shineth in another hemisphere. Ye see her not, yet she doth shine in another country. Those who mourn shall be comforted. But the kingdom of Christ has begun. The kingdom will finish and nothing will finish it. Nothing will comfort those who mourn, but the finishing of death itself. When Paul writes about the resurrection of the dead, when he writes about the hope that gives us comfort at a time like this, at the very end of that discourse, he does that, that thing where he almost seems to be taunting death. He says these words. He's actually quoting from Isaiah when he says death is swallowed up in victory. And if you go back to Isaiah 
chapter 25, you find the context in which these words were written. The Lord is setting on a mountaintop a feast for all those who have waited on his salvation. And these are the words that are proclaimed. This is Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Death is like a black hole. If you imagine the power of death, the sway of death, it's like a tidal current that cannot be escaped. The death of those we love, the death of people around us serves in addition to a prompt for grief, also a reminder that that we too will travel the same path. So that death has an inevitability to it. The death is the thing we must all reconcile ourselves to prepare ourselves for. Everything eventually sucked into that all-consuming black hole, that gaping mouth that consumes everything. And you can imagine it, like the tidal pull as everything is sucked in. And then God comes, and Paul proclaims the words of Isaiah and says there's something larger than death. If death is is the great mouth that swallows everything as you look down within it, and it seems as if the whole world will be sucked into it, suddenly you see opening around death, greater jaws than death. And now it is death that has reason to fear. It is death that is swallowed up in victory. The victory of God. The victory of God. The God who promises that those who mourn will be comforted is the victor over death itself. He will comfort us not just by showing us that there was a silver lining. that There were some good things to balance out the bad. He will comfort us even in moments of death by defeating it and reversing it and bringing life out of it. St. Athanasius wrote about this, which inspired a contemporary poet, Scott Carnes, to write a poem called The Death of Death. Put fear aside, now that he has entered into death on our behalf, all who live no longer die as men once did. That ephemeral occasion has met its utter end. As seeds cast to the earth, we will not perish, but like those seeds shall rise again. The shroud of death itself having been burst to tatters by love's immensity. The winding shroud of death wrapped around the body of Jesus Christ, holding him tight, cinching him in as he's placed in the tomb. But that shroud could not contain him. The love of Christ was too great and too strong. The shroud of death bursts at the seams. 
and God swallows up death in victory. The same Christ who broke through the shroud of death turns to us and says, Blessed are we who mourn, for we will be comforted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust in the good news of your gospel and we take comfort in your strength, which is perfected in our weakness. We are not ashamed of our grief, Lord. We cry before you. We mourn what has been taken from us. We cannot imagine how the holes that have opened up in our lives will ever be filled. And yet, in this weakness, in this brokenness, we feel our need for you all the more. Our need to cling to you, to trust in you, cling, our need to be with you in your word and in prayer. Lord, we ask for your comfort to be poured out on your people in our grief. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.